accessing agent files. Brian Sovereign. Early 21st Century Anarchist. Creator and host of the podcast Sovereign Check. By the year 2021, the show would be instrumental in the downfall of various conservative ideologies in the government, helping usher in an incredible time. Hey, want to take a walk on the wild side and experience the bleeding edge of technology? Then get ready because it doesn't get much more edgy than this. You're in for a wild ride. You're listening to Sovereign Tech with your host, the man in triple black, the golden stallion of the tech world, Brian Sovereign. He's got a huge brain. And now here's Brian. The golden stallion here for you for another great episode of Sovereign Tech. And boy, I am on location. I will not tell you where, but I can tell you this. That by the time you hear this, I will be in Washington, D.C., the very belly of the beast that is the American Empire. And, uh, yeah, I'm actually there for uh, Bitcoin in the Beltway, I believe it's called. Uh, sounds like it's, it's going to be a great time. And obviously, I will do um, the lovely and hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy and I will be both there for that. And then we'll be going to Porkfest directly afterwards. And we will do a wrap up show. Uh, down the line, and I got to tell you, the episode that will be released while we're away at Porkfest should include the lovely and hyper-intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy, and that is a great one. Believe me, you're going to want to hear it. And you know, speaking of people wanting to hear it and wanting to hear Sovereign Tech, um, yes, I'm on location, so I'm using a Blue Yeti microphone. It might sound a little different than when I'm normally in front of the RE20, I believe is the name of the microphone. Uh, anyway, but... Episode 77, which is the last episode that I had uh, Stephanie on, has something like 31,000 downloads. Seriously, 31,000. And I have no idea why that is. I've tried to look into it to see if somebody shared it somewhere that I should know about. Maybe there's some kind of really interesting topic on there. I certainly enjoyed the topic about uh, what life may have really been like in the Paleolithic era for humanity. Uh, I enjoyed that. In fact, there's going to be a part two of that, not in this episode, but in the next one with Stephanie on it. Um, I don't get it. So if anybody has any idea how the hell <laughs> one of the episodes of Sovereign Tech got 31,000 downloads, I mean, maybe it was a bot. Hell, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> or maybe, you know, it got shared somewhere and people found it somehow interesting. Got some new followers from doing it, too. So anyway, it was a great episode. I just I don't know how I got 31,000. Um, moving on, though. OK, so I will be traveling. I'm going to try and get a, a special out, at least one special out for you as well. Uh, next week for you to enjoy while I am away when I, you know, <laughs> as I always say, uh, when the golden stallions away, the sovereign naughty get to play. So we'll, we'll, we'll see if we can set that up. Let's get into the rapid fire stories. We got a great episode lined up here for you and I, I want to get into everything. So Facebook has created a Snapchat clone and it is very much that it is a Snapchat clone. For those that don't know, Snapchat is the uh, social network, essentially, that allows you to take a picture that apparently, quote unquote, gets deleted, quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> OK. And so Facebook has made one and they call it Slingshot. 
and I haven't messed with it yet. I'm actually, I really don't like the idea of putting Facebook software on my phone, but um, apparently it has a real issue. I did see a demo of it and it has the real issue of that to be able to see what the person slingshotted you not snapchatted but it's the same damn thing that you have to send something back to them now i can see where i mean (laughs) i can actually see where this kind of makes sense because to some degree you know it's it's really i mean all right a lot of people talk about how snapchat snapchat is glorified sexting uh you know with pictures and so i can see where slingshot is really ahead of the curve on this because you have to follow the age-old rule of I'll show you mine if you show me yours. (laughs) So maybe that's what they were shooting for, and they're not being chalant about it at all. Uh, But anyway, so you can check that out if you want. Uh, I probably will not mess with it, but if I do, yeah, I'll put it up on SovereignTech.com. So and speaking up on SovereignTech.com, on the left, there are like affiliate links and, and other things. And of course, most of the donation stuff can be found in the show notes, but there are affiliate links on the left. The Sprint referral link the affiliate link for sprint uh is non-existent the referral program for sprint is non-existent so i appreciate anybody that wanted to you know make a little money and and allow me to make a little money off of getting a new sprint uh, uh plan but that is dead so there you go anyway moving on uh the amazon app store is coming to you won't believe the platform it's coming to it is coming to blackberry 10.3 <laughs> Hey, I guess if you can put it on everything, put it on everything, right? What the hell? So, (laughs) and of course the, the Amazon phone, as of this recording, the Amazon phone did come out. It's called the fire. I will be talking about that more in the next episode of sovereign tech. So if you want to find out about that, keep, uh, you know, keep listening for not this Saturday, but the following Saturday. Um, let's see what else we got. Derek smart. I love this guy, Derek smart, just a real renegade in the gaming industry. Uh, he has a new MMO coming out. Of course, it's massive multiplayer online game for his series called line of defense. And I'm excited about the game itself. I'm actually a huge fan with Derek smart, with what the games he develops, he's known for millennium 3000 AD and others. Okay. Uh, these were games that were trying to be you know, over a decade ago, these were games like Battle Cruiser 2000 was another one, right? 2080. They were trying to be everything where you're in a spaceship and then you could land and you could explore, you know, and, and like in first person. But then you'd go up into the spaceship and you could do like Starfighter stuff or you could do kind of a bridge commander type thing. It was really one of those games that was genuinely trying to do it all where you had a full on experience. And you know, some people feels feel like it achieved that. Others don't. Uh, I always enjoyed the games. I am looking forward to line of defense. But this is the part that a lot of people are, are feeling a little sketched out about is that it, it's coming out on Steam. This MMO of line of defense. It's not line of defense tactics. That's different. It's still Derek Smart, but that's different. Um, and he's going to charge. It's coming out in early access. And you know how I feel about early access, but it's coming out for early access for ninety nine dollars. Now, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, Steam came out and said that, look, these early access games, there is no requirement for them to finish it. And so you're going to hash out $100 for a game that may never get finished. Normally, under the average circumstances, I'd say don't put that money out there. 
Okay, but in this case, I trust Eric Smart. I think he generally he delivers. He 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 ships. I'll say that he ships. Okay, <laughs> he means. I mean, he he gets stuff done, no matter if it takes a while or not. And so his reasoning, and I, I guess I kind of understand his reasoning, his reasoning for charging $99. And of course, he's going to give you a lot of value out of that. But his reasoning is that he only wanted serious alpha and beta testers to apply. And so he wanted people that are really going to test out the bugs that are really going to give the game a workout. And so he didn't want to just charge 15 bucks for that for somebody who'd buy it. And then, you know, la-di-da, they don't mess with it. He wanted, you know, the real deal, the real passion in there. And honestly, I think that's a pretty good excuse for it. And if it wasn't a guy who has such a tremendous history in the game development world, uh, I would be, you know, like I said, I'd be sketched out. But this is a case where, you know, you're going to just trust the developer. You know, it's I mean, it's no different than people hashing in millions and millions and millions of dollars, uh, you know, to, to Chris Roberts for Star Citizen. And I, I'd give Chris Roberts however much money he wanted <laughs> myself. I mean, Wing Commander is the greatest games of all time. And Derek Smart's works uh, come up, you know, they, they hold up. So anyway, I just wanted to get that out there. That was kind of some breaking news that was going on. Um, but let's let's move on to another unique character in the tech world, we'll say, and or maybe the science world. And that's Elon Musk, a guy I really kind of have a love hate relationship with. Uh, I appreciate how he is just forcing, you know, advancement in technologies and engineering forward. Uh, that little patent trick he pulled uh, about a week back was interesting where, you know, he made the, the Tesla patents. He pretty much put them out in the open, right? Uh, but a lot of people are crediting him. The part that I hate is that people call him the, you know, the real-life Tony Stark. And it's like, okay, come on. Tony Stark actually built and designed all his own shit. You know, Elon Musk has an engineering degree. I understand that. All right. But let's not give him that much credit. And besides, I mean, c- come on. How many people even knew who Tony Stark was was before the first Iron Man movie came out? I was a huge fan of Iron Man. And like the sales figures, I didn't know if there was going to be a next issue the following month, every month for years, because the sales figures were that bad up until the movie came out, of course. Yeah. Anyway, um, so Elon Musk, though, you know, I'm, I'm, I appreciate what he's putting out there. Uh So he's planning on building a gigantic, I mean, this is like a mega sized solar energy plant in upstate New York. Uh, I don't know how that's going to go. He has, he, he does own 23% of stock. And so the controlling share really in a, uh, in a major solar panel company. And so maybe he can pull it off, but you know, there aren't any real numbers as to how much this, you know, solar uh, plant is going to, you know, how much energy it's going to deliver, how much it's going to power. Uh, but good, I'm excited about solar uh, energy, and I think it needs to be used more. And if he wants to double down and put the money on, then, hey, okay. But something that may be a little more not so safe a bet, I think a lot of people agree that solar energy is a good idea. Uh, but something that may not be such a safer bet is interesting, and, and this is going to lead into our main story really nicely is that he recently was at a conference, Elon Musk, and said that humans will be on Mars within a decade by his own hand, if necessary. And, okay, (laughs) 
this isn't necessarily new news. He talked about before how he wanted humans, you know, on Mars by 2020, how he had this, you know, whole plan set up uh, to get them there. And also he didn't just say that, that we'd be there in a decade, but he said that it would be a tourist attraction and there would be uh, long-term cities or at least a long-term city on Mars, uh, you know, in, in pretty short order after the first humans get there. And, you know, I really, I believe me, I hope that all happens and his reasons for doing so, I agree, you know, he wants to be a multi-planet species, which is something that Carl Sagan talked about long ago in 1980, saying that that was a, a way to, for humans to survive. And I am totally game for that. I think it's a great idea. Uh, but I don't think, and, and I will, I, when I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I always fess up and I always admit to it on this show. But I don't think, and we, we love to call things on Sovereign Tech, right? I don't think humans are ever going to go to Mars. Um, at least not while there is a U.S. government. Not while there are, uh, you know, the force of the gun is controlling the ability to reach for the stars. I don't think we are going to reach Mars. And my reasons for that is, uh, you know, maybe a little conspiratorial, but it's kind of funny because actually, and, and this isn't new, if, if you're a longtime listener to Sovereign Tech, I talked about this before, that a few years ago, they talked about... You know, there or a couple of years ago, there was a lot of talk. Elon Musk and some other companies came out and they said and even the U.S. came out and said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to be on Mars inside of, you know, kind of the same thing by 2020 inside of 10 years, whatever. And then suddenly, you know, you get the couple of these organizations, a couple of these private organizations saying they're going to go to Mars. And then there's this there's this report that, oh, scientists just suddenly out of nowhere discovered that there's a third Van Allen belt. Now, if you don't know what the Van Allen belts are, they are uh, belts of essentially radiation. And a lot of people feel that humans can't pass through those. In fact, some people have felt that humans never went to the moon because the instant that they came in contact with the Van Allen belt, they would have died. So now, do I think humans went to the moon? Well, yes, of course I do. Uh, I most certainly do. I may have some uh, differing theories as to uh, what may have happened on the moon, but uh, I, I definitely, I firmly believe humans went to the moon. And But these Van Allen belts are pretty serious. And then suddenly, just a few years ago, scientists discover, and literally within a week of all these announcements of going to Mars, they discover, oh, there's this third Van Allen belt, right? And then, ironically, weeks later, the Van Allen, that Van Allen belt, oh, a solar flare destroyed it. And so it's not there anymore. But even that Van Allen belt, they said, was transient. It, it kind of it came and it went. It came and it went. And so you just, boy, you just couldn't guess. And we can't risk. And they, you know, NASA knew there was a risk when they did the Apollo missions with the Van Allen belts, with the radiation being too much. Uh, obviously, you know, humans can get through it okay, since Buzz Aldrin is still alive and kicking very, very well and knocking people out with right hooks. Uh but this third van, the fact that they can just come up with these reasons to say, hey, yeah, no, you better not go. I I wonder. Maybe it's all true. Maybe it's it's perfectly logical science. But I thought it was just sketchy that suddenly there's this mysterious Van Allen belt that comes out of nowhere that they discover in 2013. So anyway, I, I get the sense that for whatever reasons, and I'm not going to explore those reasons right now, alternative three, but uh, I think that. The U.S. government wants to very much be in control 
of who goes to Mars, or at least some governments, whoever they may be on planet Earth, are are very much concerned with who actually gets uh, interstellar. So I don't see it happening, but that's just a prediction, and I am welcome, very much welcome to being wrong now. Speaking of space travel, let's get into our main story. There was a very, very popular story going around that NASA is building a warp-capable vessel. Now, of course, it's not warp drive as in, uh, you know, physically propelling something faster than the speed of light. That's that's how it works in Star Trek is that the, the Enterprise doesn't fold space. It actually, like, it literally is moving faster than the speed of light. Now, that's not really possible uh, in and of itself, but you can, you can essentially, the trick is... Well, I'll go into how the trick works, but let's read a little bit more about the about the starship here that they're kind of designing. They actually hired um, an artist, Mark Rademacher. Uh, I think I got his name right. And he designed the IXS Enterprise. And this is quite a, you know, I have to admit, it's a good looking starship. Uh, and they wanted to kind of flesh out what this thing would end up looking like. Like now, uh, Rademacher, Raidmaker, maybe that's how you pronounce his name is clearly a huge Star Trek fan, and definitely he took a lot of uh, kudos to him for this, actually. It is a beautiful-looking ship. Uh, he d- took designs from Matt Jeffries. Matt Jeffries, of course, is the guy that created the original Enterprise from the 60s and also did work for uh, you know various ships uh, later on in the Star Trek ethos in the 70s in particular. And this Enterprise actually looks like this is kind of a rarity that a lot of people don't know about, but there's, if you look in Star Trek, the motion picture, there's a point where they're in the rec room. Okay. The recreation room and the rec deck. And there is a history of the enterprise. And there's all these vessels named enterprises. And there's this one that looks really, really weird. In fact, I think you see it again, um, in, in, into darkness in Star Trek into darkness, the, the latest Star Trek movie which we're going to talk about that later too. <laughs> um, and in that, it has like the circular drive around it, kind of looks like the Vulcan ships from from Enterprise, from the show Enterprise. And so this has that, where it has the circle, you know, the, the uh, yeah, the circle, circular kind of engines. I guess these would end up being the, the LQBR engines around it. And then it, it sort of has a dish in the front. You can see the pictures online. I've got a link in the show notes for you to check out. So, uh, you know, and again, great job in the design, no doubt about it. Uh, total, total kudos to, uh, Matt Rademacher. And he worked with NASA's Dr. Harold White to produce visual concepts for the craft. White and his team at NASA are hoping to make faster than light travel possible with Alcubierre drives. The drives, named for physicist Miguel Alcubierre, theoretically work by distorting space-time, by expanding the space behind a ship and contracting the space in front of it. The IXS Enterprise could drastically speed up our space travel potential, making the 4.3 light-year journey to Alpha Centauri in around two weeks. And that is amazing. Okay, that is absolutely amazing to be able to do that. And obviously, that, that's very exciting to read. There's a good reason the story has made the rounds and was very popular a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and now, Alpha Centauri, of course, the reason they use that is because that's the closest star to us, other star to us, uh, you know, that, that we know of, or closest star system, I should say, not closest star, because really there's been a whole bunch of uh, findings in the past week about uh, 
uh, finding sister stars to the sun and all kinds of crazy stuff. So there may be things somewhat degree, to somewhat degree closer. Uh, but Alpha Centauri, closest star system that we know of, really, and it could do that in two weeks. But what's the catch? What's, you know, why, why aren't we doing this already? What's the deal? Well, partly, and this is actually something talked about year, uh, a good year and a half ago on Sovereign Tech. This is a very early story, uh, the original 2012 story about the Alcubi Air Drive. Um, and the Alcubi Air Drive is a very, very old math trick uh, that, that, was, that was figured out. And it, you know, like Miguel Alcubierre originally talked about it in 1994, but actually it really is much older. Uh, and it is a kind of a, you know, it's a trick because it's a hole in the theory of general relativity. Okay. And so mathematically you could kind of say it's possible, but there is an issue that you run into. There's a lot of excitement around this, but the original writers for the Alcubierre drive, and that's important to look into. Okay. Uh, gets the theories behind it can get a little strange. And what I mean by a little strange, I mean, they can get into perhaps the, the esoteric into how to make this work into how to get the energy. I mean, before, okay. Like it, it was solid, but the problem was, is that you couldn't produce enough energy to really make this push and pull happen. Uh, that, you know, that, that happens, when you're not not essentially folding space, but, you know, shrinking and contracting, it might as well be folding space, uh, even though it's a slightly different principle. And I'm not, I don't want to necessarily get into all of that. But what I do want to talk about, you know, in the fact that that just like I don't think humans are going to go to Mars while there's governments, I don't know that the Alcubierre drive is ever even going to take off because I, I question some of the science behind it that they're not talking about, okay? Uh, and that's not because of the U.S. government. That's just in general. But I don't... I, I'm a little concerned. That, you know, there's a funny meme that went around uh, a little bit back where it was a picture of a bald eagle, of course, symbol of America, had an American flag behind it, and it said, oh... There's oil on Titan, of course, Titan being one of the extrasolar moons. Looks like Titan needs some freedom. And, <laughs> and of course, it was in reference to the fact that the, you know, military machine, the military industrial complex, whatever phrase you want to use, uh, you know, just just they only act upon, you know, greed, it seems, in any of the invasions and anything that they do. And so that's kind of my concern is that what exactly NASA can barely get any funding right now. I don't know how exactly they would get funding to actually build the IXS enterprise in the first place. And with that, I mean, but, you know, you have no problem with the military getting all the funding in the world that it wants. You know, you just write, write the check. It doesn't matter. And so I guess I wonder, not that I think when you go out there anyway, even if you went to Alpha Centauri, I don't think you're going to find complex life in the first place. That's just my opinion. I've talked about it plenty of times before on Sovereign Tech. So, you know, you can listen back if you want to hear about that. But I, I don't think we're ready. 
Say we even did find complex life. I'd, I'd hate to have anyone involved in the government be the people that meet up with alien life forms. I mean, I'm terrified of it. Do you see how we treat or how we do you see how the United States treats its own quote unquote citizens? What do you think they're just going to be? Oh, you're a complex life. You are really great. You are really something. Um, I mean, look, look at, look how we treat, <laughs> look at how we treat, you know, Mexicans or anybody that's not in the United States when they try to come here. I mean, you know, you can't even, you can't even come in, even if your life depended on it. Jews were turned away in world war two. That was only 60 years ago. You know, literally a boatload. Uh, we drone people around the world. I mean, tell me. I'm glad everybody's excited about traveling the stars, but tell me why exactly humanity has really, you know, who, who could we possibly send out there that we would feel could somehow represent us, represent humanity for the wonderful things that we can do? I don't think there's anyone out there. You know, some people say, well, we'll finally be united if we find another alien species. Yeah, right. I know that's kind of what happened in Star Trek when you meet the Vulcan. Suddenly humanity unites and everything goes good and it becomes this great socialist uh, empire or whatever. Maybe not an empire. But I just don't think we're ready. It's a beautiful ship. But you can email me. Tell me, if you, tell me why you think we're ready to meet these, this other complex life. We're on the brink of a global finance paradigm shift. And at the core of this movement, Bitcoin. But many early adopters need a safe, stable, and secure method of storing Bitcoin that doesn't require an electronic device. Enter CryptoCards, the world's first BIP38 passphrase-encrypted laser-edged aluminum offline wallets. CryptoCards are the same size as a credit card, only they're scratch-resistant, waterproof, and flame-resistant up to 600 degrees. Unlike paper wallets, they won't ever rip, fade, or crumple, and the high-density aluminum is rated to last 75 years. Your coins will be secure for as long as you need. Having Bitcoin physically allows you to store them in a secure location instead of on a networked computer. This is key. Your funds will be impervious to hacks and the negligence of third parties. It's a truly trustless system. You hold the keys, you hold the funds. For more info, visit CryptoCards.co. We ship worldwide and using the code FTL, you'll save 10%. We're proud to be part of a liberty-oriented movement and the future is looking bright. Hello, Mr. Sovereign. Brian Sovereign. And yours? Natalia. Care to play a game of roulette? I'd love to. Number and color? 69. Black. As you wish. Tech Roulette. It is time for Tech Roulette, where we cover stories that get sent in to me via the various channels possible. And boy, did the channels open up. Uh, <laughs> I do have a bit message now available for people to contact me. That is an incredibly secure, really well done. It I didn't always think so, uh, but now I, I, I definitely feel that that bit message has really come into its own, and I am happy to use it. Gotten a lot of bit messages from people. Thank you so much. Uh, also, RetroShare, that, that's, and we're going to talk more about that later, but RetroShare, uh, that's another way to get in touch with the show. 
Uh, all this stuff is in the show notes. Of course, the email SovereignTech at RiseUp.net, but everything's in the show notes and you can find it there. You just got to look. You might have to look a little hard, but it is there. Um, and, you know, and you can send in stories and I'll talk about them, whatever you want me to talk about. I will do my best to get to them. I have plenty to go through, but please keep them coming because sometimes they really, they have to be done right away. And I sort of do eeny, meeny, miny, mo as to which one I do. And yeah, sometimes some of these stories just really, you know, there's never, there's not a point to, to necessarily talking about them after a certain period of time. So please do keep sending in stories. Uh, but we're, you know, we were just talking about space travel and, you know, the fact of is humanity ready for these things? And I think that's something worth talking about with our next subject. OK. Um, and, and by the way, again, I, I, I just want to be clear. I don't think the Alcubier drive will ever work. I don't think that humanity, um, unless some kind of longevity technology comes around, which is what we're going to talk about now. I don't think humanity is ever going to reach Alpha Centauri, I think, but I think there is plenty of incredible uh, growth and and resources and, uh, you know, really life enriching things to do within just our own solar system. We really don't have to go much farther. Uh, but hey, yeah, I believe me, I wish Star Trek happened. You know, I'd love to have a warp drive, the real deal. Uh, but going on, this is from The Telegraph, and this got sent in by a listener, and it's transhumanists are planning to upload your mind to a memory stick. And this is from April of 2014. Uh, the first, I made sure it wasn't April 1st, too. <laughs> the first Cybathlon, an Olympics for robot-assisted para-athletes, para uh, para will take place in Switzerland in October 2016 for people with disabilities who are using advanced technologies, robotic limbs, or brain-computer interfaces to compete. The transhumanists are overjoyed. As the name implies, transhumanists are people who want us to become beyond human. It's an umbrella term for a broad family of ideas united by the vision that technology now, or at least soon will, allow us to greatly enhance human intellectual, physical, and psychological capacities. That means everything from bionic limbs to uploading our entire brains onto memory sticks and carrying them around with us as a backup. For most of us, the idea of robotic arms is far out. For the transhumanists, it's probably the most uninteresting part of their speculations. Zoltan Isven, a prominent transhumanist writer, reckons functioning. Actually, he wrote the transhumanist wager. He just started following me on Twitter the other day, actually. Anyway, <laughs> uh, reckons functioning robotic limbs are only a decade away. And by the mid 2020s, it won't just be people with disabilities using them plenty of us will just prefer them they can lift more they won't break as easily from his home in california zoltan tells me uh, zoltan maybe i should say zoltan tells me via skype that we'll be having full transhumanist olympics by the 2030s with all sorts of enhanced bionic humans competing i'm not sure how accurate his timeline is scientists i've spoken to are more skeptical but it's certainly true that there are mind-boggling things underway uh, at chalmers university of technology in sweden scientists are already connecting robotic limbs to the human nervous system of amputees the first arm surgeries are scheduled to occur in less than 12 months then there's the iron man armor suit being created for american soldiers Panasonic will be releasing an exoskeleton suit shortly. Injectable oxygen shots are already here. Uh, some video games are already being played via mind-reading helmets. Enhanced contact lenses will soon allow people to have infrared night vision. Transhumanism goes way back 
goes back some way before any of this, of course. It formally started in the 1980s in California, but its roots are in the works of science fiction writers such as Isaac Asimov and the future biologist Julian Huxley, who coined the word in 1957. Transhumanism remains a smallish but well-funded movement. Humanity Plus, the largest formal umbrella group, has under 10,000 members from around the world, and they are usually rich Californians, technology geeks and scientists, sometimes all three. And it remains mostly confined to the West, though, although Korea, China, and Japan are budding outposts. According to Zoltan, the, that is his real name, by the way, not a sci-fi pseudonym, his America, he's American-Hungarian, prospects are good. Uh, transhumanism is growing like crazy. He tells me there are now hundreds of online social media groups dedicated to our ideas, many with thousands of members each. He thinks transhumanism, which has typically typically been populated by sci-fi nuts and mad scientist types is starting to attract a broader following and is becoming increasingly popular amongst the under forties. Transhumanists include life extensionists, techno-optimists, singularitons, never heard that one before, biohackers, roboticists, artificial intelligence proponents, and futurists who embrace radical science and technology to improve the human condition. It's grown by 1,000% in two years. Even if you're not hurt, even if you've not heard of these guys, and they nearly are all guys, you've probably come a- across some of the things they've, uh, they're working on. Artificial general intelligence, uh, Marvin Minsky, considered the inventor of artificial intelligence, is a prominent transhumanist. Mind uploading, megascale engineering, molecular manufacturing, autonomous self-replicating robotics, cybernetics, space colonization, virtual reality, and cryonics. If we can upgrade ourselves with technology, why not replace the body entirely? Plenty of transhumanists plan to do exactly that. Ideas range from life extension genetics to moving beyond our fleshy constraints entirely. Many think the big win is mind uploading, which is sometimes called whole brain emulation. It is what it sounds like mapping out all your brain's neural pathways and putting them all on a memory stick that you can carry about with you. If you accidentally fall down a mine shaft, no problem. Re-upload yourself. That might be closer than we think. Ray Kurzweil, probably the world's most famous transhumanist who works for Google, thinks that mind uploading will be possible sometime in the middle of this century. Again, most mainstream scientists are less convinced by Kurzweil's estimates, which do seem fairly speculative. Other transhumanists, like Dr. Anders Sandberg from Oxford University, are more conservative. And this is true. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but Kurzweil is like his predictions fall apart all the time. And I mean, he's wrong constantly (laughs) like and he wrote his probably his most famous book is the singularity is near and he wrote that in 2000 or that came out i should say in 2005 and he predicted within like 10 years so many transhumanist goals being achieved and guess what folks we've got six months (laughs) okay for a lot like memory uploading and a whole bunch of other things he keeps pushing it back and pushing it back so you know take take his stuff with a grain of salt definitely run more sandberg is definitely somebody who's a little more uh I think in line with really how it's going, you know, what the timeline we may achieve these things. Again, I say we may. Zoltan is pretty keen on uploading and has no qualms with existing as a data cluster. I tell him I don't much like the sound of it. If you and I had the chance to become safer as living entities and also more powerful, he replies, we'd certainly try it. And I think we might decide to stay there. The transhumanist radical ideas are partly propelled by a darker concern. We need to upgrade ourselves to keep up with the machines. That's something I think a lot of people worry about. What bothers them most is something called the singularity. This refers to the point at which artificial intelligence becomes so smart that it starts making even smarter versions of itself, 
leaving us mortals trailing behind. And that is the exact definition of the singularity. Kudos to the Telegraph for getting that right. Uh, that's a word that's kind of a loaded term, but that's really what it means is when an AI makes an, a better AI. Uh, <laughs> so I cannot work out how serious this prospect really is. Kurzweil thinks mid-century, 2045 to be exact, which seems disconcertingly precise. The transhumanists themselves seem divided, although most agree that it's at least a possibility this century. The fact that they've been predicting that singularity is just around the quarter for the last 20 years without any sign of it arriving is mildly comforting. Still, you can't afford to be complacent when it comes to superintelligent machines running the planet. There's an awful lot of investment in artificial intelligence at the moment, notably at Kurzweil's company, Google. If you're feeling a little uneasy about now, you're not alone. Uh, not everyone is happy about the transhumanists. Francis Fukuyama, who coined the expression the end of history, has called transhumanism the most dangerous idea of the century. He thinks it is a strange liberation movement whose crusaders aim much higher than civil rights campaigners, feminists, or gay rights advocates. This movement wants nothing less than to liberate the human race from its biological constraints. Fukuyama is a little unfair on the transhumanists. It's a broad spectrum of thought. The Future of Humanity Institute at the University of Oxford has a fair number of transhumanist academics. Much of their time is spent on carefully thinking through the ethics and morality of these technologies and how they can be used in a way that is equitable and ethical. And plenty of transhumanists are mainstream scientists working on extremely valuable medical projects like providing better bionic limbs that could allow disabled people to live more active and fulfilling lives. This seems Seems extremely necessary and important work, but it's correct that some others have slightly more unsettling projects. Eliminating suffering is one thing, but as the YouTube video above makes clear, there's one in the show notes, transhuman, uh, transhumanists want to eliminate the possibility of suffering, the ability to feel negative emotions. A number of U.S. transhumanists, we're almost done with the article, but we got a lot to talk about. A number of U.S. transhumanists have recently got together to crowd uh, fund a seastead, which is a floating community that would exist in international waters outside any legal jurisdiction. Why? Possibly to conduct scientific research that usually gets snared up in university ethics committees. In Zoltan's recent book, The Transhumanist Wager, which is fiction, he assures me, the transhumanists managed to launch the Third World War from their seastead, Transhumania. The whole project throws up very difficult ethical and philosophical challenges. Is an uploaded mind still human? Should we give human rights to an artificial intelligence with a superior intellect to a human? Uh... Then there's the, the bread and butter social problems. Presumably, human enhancement technologies would be dis disproportionately available to those with greater financial resources, creating a genetic divide. And if you live forever, are you taking up the place of another generation? What about the more mundane things? That, what would be a fair prison sentence for a murderer if we could all live for 200 years or the right retirement age? I'm guessing it won't be 70 if we can all make 30 score about in 10. Uh, above all, are we happy about all this and can we stop it? Sometimes transhumanism does feel a bit like modern religion for an individual individualistic technology obsessed age. I want to live forever. So why shouldn't I tech will help me to do it will help me do it and we'll solve the problems later. But the catch for me is the sheer boredom of living for 10,000 years. I get bored on a slow Saturday afternoon. Zoltan enlightens, enlightens me. You're asking me these questions, but I'm only answering based on our current brains. One day, our brains will be as big as the Empire State Building, full of hundreds of thousands of servers. So, no, I don't see myself getting bored in 10,000 years. He pauses. Well, I guess I've never been bored yet. Okay. 
let's talk about this. <laughs> um, transhumanism. This is a, a subject I've broached many times on the show, and it is something that evermore I get concerned about. Um, I don't, here's, here's one of the cruxes of my concern. Now, I mean, the whole retirement age and all that stuff and, uh, you know, all that crap, that's like still inferring that if we're in robot bodies, it's, it's actually, it's a pretty ridiculous question because if we're in robot bodies, what scarcity exactly would there be? What work would actually need to be done? You know, if you don't have to buy food or if you can survive in a house or something like that, I mean, you know, you're talking about extreme economic changes. It's a foolish question. Um, but here's here's the thing for me is that scientists speaking about in the last segment, how we're saying how I was saying that, you know, maybe humanity is not ready to go out and finding complex life, even if it were out there. And I don't think it is Fermi paradox. If scientists don't understand consciousness, the nature of consciousness, where it actually sits, where it really sits, where it really all comes together and comes from the entire biological process and they don't. Okay. Take it easy. I'm an atheist. Okay. But they don't know. There's the chance that uploading our brains is not enough. That the seat of consciousness may sit elsewhere or it may intermingle with other biological processes. You know, the heart, the heart generates an electromagnetic field, electromagnetic magnetic fields, uh, you know, have an effect on the body. They really do. Uh, I mean, you don't have to go so far as to say, oh, Wi-Fi is killing us, but it's just a fact that these things have have an effect. And so what I wonder is one of the things that makes something really, I want to say, alive is its ability for empathy. And, you know, even rats have empathy. And so my question becomes, does that empathy come from the heart? What is a creature without empathy? What is a human? without empathy. Are you really human at that point? Yeah, fine. You can upload, let's say, you know, and, and I'm theorizing here. Okay. But no one really has the answer. And so, you know, theories, they are what they are. If you upload all of the like actual data and your memories and experience. Okay. Into onto a memory stick or into a robot brain, whatever, whatever phrase you want to use. What happens when you don't have that heart that the, and I don't mean the physical heart. I mean, like, you know, kind of the, the metaphorical heart when you don't have that care, when you don't have that empathy, what, what becomes of, of the person then are they the same person? Can you actually interconnect? Let's go a little further. Let's, let's, let's go a little crazy. And we're just theorizing again. We can do that on sovereign tech. Okay. What happens if, one of the ways that we feel love and connection is through the closeness and intermingling of those electromagnetic fields from one literal heart, in this case, to another. What if that's part of, of how, how we find love? Uh, now, people, will of course, say, well, you know, I have long distance relationships, blah, 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 blah. Um, but then is that long distance relationship kind of working because of the lack of feeling that, and then the extreme intensity of when those electromagnetic fields get back together? I mean, you know, who knows? We don't have, in my opinion, we don't have as good enough understanding. We're not ready to go dumping our biological processes. 
right now. Uh, in my opinion, we don't have enough understanding of how the brain really works to let this sort of thing happen. Now, you know, could we do the whole cyborg thing? Yeah, as long as governments go away, as in like people that could control devices, kind of like, you know, the NSA uh, putting bugs and things and who knows whatever else. Yeah, I'm game for that. I think that's interesting. I think the idea of doing a life extension, which falls under transhumanism, I fully support life extension. You know, yeah, let's let's get it so that our bodies can last for, you know, a couple hundred years, 300 years, however long. I'm totally game for that. And there's recent interesting uh, science going on in that field where there's little girls that aren't even aging or like there's certain tissue samples within them that 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 don't age. It's incredible. So I'm intrigued by that. Uh, but I think I, I'm, I'm not ready for uploading my brain into into a non-biological device okay now this brings up another question okay so because here i am laying out you know something i like to do i hate this because there's people that that just complain right they just complain and moan all the time and they never have an actual solution and with sovereign tech i usually i like to come up with a solution i like to have a solution sometimes i don't but by and large i try to and so what i think what i am excited about to really make this happen fast because one of my solutions for getting rid of government is to literally outlive the state because states rise and fall and if you can outlive them eventually you can get to the point where you know i i think that that everybody can realize they're not needed anymore but we have this unfortunate, these unfortunate laws, okay, and this applies to sort of what they're talking about doing in, in Zoltan's book in the Transhumanist Wager where they build a, a seasteading community, okay, and that means like they, they get an ocean liner or whatever, they build something out on the ocean that doesn't uh, fall under the jurisdiction of any country. This is something, ironically, that Larry Page was saying was necessary. We needed places where we could, you know, bend the rules. That, that was Larry Page's quote at Google I.O. last year, remember? And I think there might be some degree of a shortcut that we could achieve that no one, not a lot of people seem to really talk about. And we have laws right now in the books, unfortunately, that keep us from doing a lot of things like cloning or whichever else. And so I wonder, this is the area where I'd be far more excited Okay, and I'm not saying that I, I've explored all the ethics of this. I'm just saying that I'd be more interested and excited is if we were growing humans, you know, like empty husks. And then we put brains into them and we kept all the biological processes. Okay, now maybe there's, you know, maybe there's such a thing, I don't know, as heart memory or something like that, that wouldn't allow for that to, to really, you know, that wouldn't solve the problem I discussed earlier with consciousness. And that's all theoretical, too. I'm telling you when I speculate, okay? I'm not laying it out as fact. But I would think that might be the real shortcut. But, of course, all the you know laws pretty much anywhere, and I mean, the Geneva Conventions or whatever all around the world just don't seem to allow for that, or the United Nations. I shouldn't say the Geneva Conventions. And that, but that's an area where I would be very, very interested. And maybe we could develop, you know, human bodies, you know, not humans, but human bodies that had these greater abilities. I mean, I never really hear it from, from the transhumanist circles, you know, EMPs are a real thing. Yeah. They're not necessarily efficient and effective yet, but they're by and large a real thing. And EMP being an electromagnetic pulse, which is something that, you know, it's a, it's a wave, um, a magnetic wave that, that just wipes out uh, electrical circuitry. And no one really talks about the fact that, you know, an EMP goes off and we're a bunch of transhumanists, game over. 
Uh, and, and people talk about like the superiority of, of a robotic arm. Are you kidding? Do you know how amazing it is that the human body can literally heal itself? Go ahead. I mean, you know, I don't want you to go cut yourself, but you know how it is. You get cut and, you know, a week later, it doesn't even matter how deep it is. Over time, it's going to heal. It's amazing. That, that is no, you know, the, to date, as yet, I'm sure something's getting developed in a lab and maybe that'll be worth exploring. But right now, anything getting developed as far as bionics doesn't compare to the ability, um, you know, of, of the flesh and blood body. So, you know, that, that's, that's it for me is that, I, yeah, okay, let's explore this stuff. But implementation, I think we need to wait until, you know, the culture, until society, until the world is really ready for that to happen. Um, and, and I, you know, we might be shortchanging something in our evolution, too, if, if we run off, you know, to becoming a machine species. Uh, I think, you know, biotechnology... Uh, I, I think that's something that really needs to be looked into organic machines. You know, I mean, that's stuff, that's the wildest stuff in science fiction, like the Vorlons have in Babylon five or whatever else. Uh, but I think that's really the area to kind of look into. And I'm, I, you know, I don't, I don't totally understand why it's never really talked about because I, I would actually think that a lot of organic processes especially with like 3d printing you know and the ability to print cells and all this stuff i'd almost think it'd be the easier and the better way to go kind of like remember in star trek when the voyager had bioneural gel packs and they had a 95 percent efficiency increase and it could go warp you know nine points nine 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 five it could you know go this ridiculous speed i would think it'd be easier to work with organics than it would be you know like really redundant and uh you know strong capable electronics but maybe that's just me i'm i'm not an engineer i'm just a tech enthusiast (laughs) anyway i'll be back with more this is sovereign tech hey brian what's that funny sticker over your laptop webcam i was trying to spy on you while you were in the shower but now i can't see that's why i have it and it's from eff.org eff what's that It's the Electronic Frontier Foundation, totally donor-funded organization that fights for internet freedom, privacy. Wow, that sounds great. So EFF.org, I support internet freedom and privacy, and maybe you do too. Yeah, and you can support them with Bitcoin. The Electronic Frontier Foundation at EFF.org. You're a lucky man, Mr. Sovereign. Not many win so well at the game of chance. That's because it's not a game of chance, Natalia. It's a game of choice. (laughs) Game of choice. It is time for Game of Choice, where I talk about a game that uh, maybe went under the radar, maybe needs a good reinstall. Uh, It could be a popular one. Maybe it's a game that never came out. But uh, this this week, I'm going to talk about a game that uh, I consider, at least for the NES, is probably, for me, the greatest game of all time. Uh, certainly a a personal favorite, easy, and it's Battletoads. <laughs> uh, Battletoads, a lot of I think a lot of people played this. It came out in '91, I believe, for the NES. 
Uh, and there, there were other games. There was actually quite a few games that came out for it. There's Battletoads and Battle Maniacs in 93, Battletoads and Double Dragon, which was amazing. Uh, there was even an arcade game version of it released in 94. I think it was Super Battletoads or something. Uh, anyway, uh, Battletoads in 91 for the NES. A lot of people played it. And uh, the the main characters, uh, Pimple and Zitz, uh, <laughs> which I, I love the names of of, of the Toads. Um, they, you know, I mean, they were they were pretty popular, and they they got you know put on the covers of uh, of magazines, you know, GamePro and whatever else quite a bit. Uh, so a lot of people really played these ga- played the first Battle Toads, but I don't think anyone actually not a lot of people beat it. Uh, because it's an incredibly difficult game. In fact, there's a level where you're on these kind of these hover bikes, and it, it's so weird because you have to you have to like jump over these obstacles or you have to avoid them, and you're going faster and faster. And there's a multitude of these levels that you have to go through. Um, and when <laughs> you know you're, you're talking about 1991, you're talking about the Nintendo Entertainment System and the graphical ability at the time, and you like had very little notice. In fact, it was blinking. You couldn't even barely see the, the upcoming obstacle, almost like a hurdle that you would have to leap over on this hover bike. And it was so tough to beat. And you'd have to start at the beginning of the level, you know, most of the time to, you know, to, to finish it. And it just, it took forever. So not a lot of people beat this game incredibly hard is notorious for that, but it had this awesome, especially for 91, it had this awesome graphical style. Now, of course, uh, you know, the, the battle toads are kind of anthropomorphized. Uh, they don't hop around, they walk on, you know, they're bipedal, uh, and they, they could do, depending on which character you're playing, there's, there's three of them, depending on which character you're playing, you can kind of do like this big boot or you can pick up when you defeated certain enemies, you could take parts of them. Like there's like a boned looking enemy and you, then you could take its leg and you could kind of beat people with the bone leg. Uh, really, you know, I mean, the ability to do these kinds of things, like not just run and jump and shoot fireballs like Super Mario Brothers was even in 91 was really kind of unique. Like people hadn't necessarily seen that double dragon would be the case, which was great that there was a battle toads versus double dragon game. Uh, you know, it was, it was kind of the only times you could do that where you could pick up whips and you could pick up all this other stuff and you could use, uh, materials that were around, but also battle toads allowed for, and this was kind of unique. There were certain, uh, you know, enemy characters that you could leap onto and you could ride them. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, even Double Dragon never pulled that one off. <laughs> uh, it's really cool. Uh, or, of course, Renegade was another game where you could kind of do that sort of thing, I suppose. But uh, but Battletoads really took the cake. And it kind of had a fun story, somewhat of a comic book story. And the villain, or should I say, the villainess, was is really, she's almost more popular than the Battletoads games themselves because uh, she's sexy. I mean, not just sexy, but it's the Dark Queen is her name, but she is incredibly sexy. I mean, like they really pulled out all the stops uh, as far. And she's human. You know, she's not a toad at all, um, but but she is human. And yeah, I I mean, there's really not there's I can't really think, especially at the time, I can't think of a character quite like her. Uh, And, you know, it. It is kind of a sexy character. I mean, even though, well, at the time I was like 10 years old when Battletoads came out and, you know, maybe 13, 14 later on with some of the later games when the Dark Queen really got fleshed out. But I mean, she's wearing like this, you know, black one piece uh, 
you know, kind of, it's not a bathing suit. I, I guess I'd say not, not really a corset either, but maybe almost a lingerie or something and a cape. And she had these thigh high black boots, dark black hair. I mean, just stunning. You got to see it. You got to look it up. So check out Battletoads. Anyway, a lot to love. Still a great game to play. Still hard as hell. But uh, definitely, I, I'd have to say my favorite Nintendo game of all time. So Battletoads, go check it out. Boy, take a look at that dark queen. <laughs> I'll be back with more. Time now for 90 Seconds on Sex with Dr. Paul. In a recent study about the impact of alcohol on judgment, students were asked to rate the bad things that happened while they'd been drinking. Or rather than rating the bad things as negatively as most other people would have rated them, the students who were now sober and thinking back over what had happened didn't think it was so bad at all. Blacking out, passing out, waking up with a terrible hangover, these weren't rated as being so bad, or even bad at all. In other words, the negative consequences were minimized, even days later when the students were sober. Also, the students tended to rate the things that they perceived to be good as being better than they really were. So there's also a positive memory bias, meaning that positive events associated with drinking were recalled more positively than they were actually experienced. I can't help but wonder how this works with perceptions of sex. Do people who've sobered up interpret sex that was really lousy as being better than it actually was? And what about sex that was okay? Do they assume it was really good? Whatever the case, beer goggles seem to distort perception even after a person is sober. Students also tended to overestimate the number of drinks that were needed to experience negative consequences. Some would say it takes 10 drinks to get wasted, when two or three would get them well on their way to being impaired. For more, visit 90secondsonsex.com. You are quite the man, Mr. Sovereign. Are you busy tonight? Natalia, if you'll excuse me, I... uh just received a very important email. Later then, Mr. Sovereign. Important email. It is time for important email where you send me messages via whatever. BitMessage, RetroShare, uh, even Twister, Twitter, uh, you know, Google Plus. I'm not really messing much with Google Plus right now. I, I was, I've been a little dismayed with what's going on with that, though. Maybe they're not going to dump it, but a lot of signs are saying that that they are. Even though I think uh, I did theorize that Google Plus was going to become somewhat of the the a cloud operating system in reality, which very much Google Drive, I suppose, already was. But this is going to allow for so much more. Uh, that's not the path they seem to be taking. But, uh, but it doesn't seem to be dead yet. But anyway, I, I do share stuff on Google+. Plus. Adding me to your circles. Hangouts is obviously going to be something that's going to be around for a really long time. So adding me to your circles and all that, getting my numbers up that way is really helpful. So even though I don't post a lot on Google+, Plus anymore, it's okay. Anyway, you have plenty of ways to contact me. You take your pick. It's all in the show notes. Uh, you know, just you got to look. Anyway, um, with uh, important email this of course i'm going to cover emails uh, that people have now some people ask me about what did i think about e3 now i eliminated the segment of sovereign tech called game talk so that's probably an area where i would have talked about e3 more in depth and i had a lot of other stories i want to get to so i'm going to do that since you asked i will get into it right here and i don't have a whole lot to say on e3 uh, i will say this i think that and i'm going to get into another question but i think with e3 i think that it I was kind of shocked at 
the Xbox at, at Microsoft's performance there. Um, there was, it was almost, they didn't really, Microsoft's really good at pushing the future. Okay. And they're pushing an idea of the future and the Xbox one, the presentation they gave just seemed so mundane for Microsoft. It was really kind of weird. Um, I, I don't, I wouldn't be shocked. And this has been kind of hinted at, uh, by saying that nothing's off the table by uh, by Satya Nadella, I wouldn't be shocked if the X, if Microsoft dumps the Xbox brand. I know they're pushing a whole bunch of stuff with you know Xbox Music and all that, but maybe they won't dump the Xbox brand, but they may dump the physical device known as the Xbox, like the console. They may leave the essentially leave the console wars, and maybe with Windows Nine coming out or, or what they call Threshold. With Threshold coming out in, in next year, April 2015, I, I'm going to guess that they're going to come out with like a gaming edition of Windows and they may just drop the Xbox entirely because I got to tell you, the PlayStation 4 is such an amazing gaming system and they really showed it at E3 too, just everything that it can do. I mean, this is, this is a system looking so far ahead, such a great price point. That's another thing too, Xbox dropping the Kinect, all that. I mean, it's, it just, it really seems weird. Um, and the the 2015 lineup for Nintendo for the Wii U and the 3DS is pretty unparalleled. I, I think the Wii U is going to find its real footing in 2015. It's a shame it takes years for a Nintendo system to do that often enough, uh, but ever since the Super Nintendo anyway. Um, but I, I, that's that's kind of my feeling. And, you know, I got to say... <laughs> Yeah, so so dire prediction for Xbox One. That's that's my takeaway from from E3 and Wii U and PS4 are doing great, and of course PC gaming top of the world as always. Um, but I gotta say, you know what I was really hoping for at E3, and this wasn't a prediction. I knew it wasn't going to happen, but I was what I really would 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 have made my day is if somebody at Sega just came running out and said, "Hey, hey, hey, 2015." We're going to release the Genesis 2. Oh, man. Tell me you wouldn't have just like jizzed in your pants, you know, or had an orgasm. I know tons of female gamers. I love you. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it would have been amazing. Anyway, I would have loved it. Genesis 2, you know, just come out with that and have it just be this, you know, incredible machine with, with specs that, that would even blow away the PS4. Uh, anyway, that but that didn't happen. Uh, but let, let's let's move on to another question. <laughs> it's a, a topic a, a little more serious, actually in, in, incredibly serious. So, and this is part of uh, I get some emails that are incredibly long, and they have a multitude of questions, and obviously I can't get to all of them inside of one important email segment. Uh, so I break them up at times, and this is from a, a longer email. I love getting long emails. Please, you know, don't misunderstand what I'm saying there. And uh, this is, I rarely ever hear anyone publicly admit to killing someone, even when it's quote unquote legal in wartime. I don't judge you for it. This is from the emailer. I don't judge you for it or even have much of an opinion on it in your situation. But the fact that you, Brian, don't have PTSD after seeing combat and you're so well adjusted is amazing. I think a lot of vets could benefit from hearing your views and coping mechanisms. It would probably have to be a different podcast. Just the thought. Um, yeah, I, I'm open to possibly like, you know, maybe doing an entire special or something like that uh, about this subject. So, but 
you know, I'll, I'll touch on it here uh, because I, I want to get some some points on it clear. And I really appreciate, you know, the, 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 the comment you're making email or thank you so much. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't walk away from the army, uh, you know, being well adjusted. It was years after being out of the army, uh, that one could say, I guess I became what you would call well adjusted. Even if I, if, if one could, if you could say that about me now, right. <laughs> um, but I was in the military, uh, for just under two years. So from, uh, 2002 touching a little bit into Oh four. And, uh, I did get out early cause I was contracted for four years. Um, I was originally a, uh, was originally a 31 uniform and then became a 37 Foxtrot 31 uniform, essentially a communications guy. Uh, and 37 Foxtrot is PSYOPs, Psychological Operations. And uh, I traveled the world pretty good because when you're in psychological operations, when you're in PSYOPs, you are essentially a propaganda man. Your job is to get the indigenous populations in various wherever you happen to be and get them to essentially think that you're the good guys or get them to do the actions that you want them to do, be it if you want them to revolt or you want them to perhaps vote a certain way, things like that, all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, it's uh, it's a job that at the time I was a little excited to get uh, because there, there's some degree of prestige, I guess, around being um, in, in PSYOPs. But uh, afterwards, it, it really, it, it showed me just how, just how insane American foreign policy is because it's so largely based on misperceptions. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, <laughs> you're messing with people's heads. The, so yeah, uh, coming out of it, well-adjusted, um, that, that didn't happen. I went into the military. Uh, I still have the dog tags that say, you, you know, you get to put your religion on the dog tags. And uh, my dog tag says no preference, which is synonymous with atheist, which is what I was at the time. Um, but when I left the military, I was a uh, pretty much a Christian. Um not that Christianity was really new to me. I was, you know, raised Jewish. Then my parents converted to Christianity later on in life. And so I had, you know, experience with Christianity and, uh, that was kind of the religion that I left. And so it ended up being the religion I went back to and I went back to it. Uh, and this is why I say I didn't really walk away unscathed. No, I don't, I don't have PTSD at all. Certainly. Um, but I mean, to, to go into the, the military as an atheist and then come out, uh, you know, as a Christian, uh, is not 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 really a sign of uh, of a healthy departure. And the reason that I you know, and I've done a lot of self analysis on this. I've thought a lot about it. I've talked about it uh, with some people. Um, lovely and hyper intelligent Dr. Stephanie Murphy has really helped me out with a lot of it. Um, I I think I became I became religious in the military because I was doing such horrendous things like like the emailer mentioned killing people and and I, and I killed a lot of people i mean it wasn't you know anyway the number doesn't matter um 
you're doing such horrendous things that I think you somehow you you either probably end up killing yourself, which a lot of people try to do, and they become what's called a pink vest, where you you, you know they they put a pink vest on you, and if that's not uh, if that's not <laughs> some degree of, of of shaming of oh you got to wear pink, you're a woman, you're a girl, you can handle the job. Uh, that's crazy, but you know there's certainly plenty of people that that try to do that. Uh, or somehow you have to justify doing really terrible things, be it killing a lot of people of various ages or whatever. Ruining lives, ruining towns. Um, you know, and, and when you start to believe in God, I think you can suddenly justify a whole ton of shit. A lot of really evil shit. I mean, you have to justify God's evil shit, right? You know, uh, the genocidal act of the flood. Um, you know, you, you, the actions of Revelation where Jesus himself is going to come down and kill billion, you know, millions and billions of people. Uh, you, re, you know, it makes it easy to think that it's the order of the universe for you to be fighting this just war, you know. And in fact, there's a lot of people. I mean, I was in, you know, I was involved with... Uh, you know, with, with the Iraq, uh, invasion, essentially, you know, in 03. And there's a lot of people who think a lot of Christians who think that actually the, the invasion of Iraq, the, the, the deposing of Saddam Hussein is, was actually a biblical, like it was prophecy coming to light because in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 13. It talks about how Babylon will never rise again. Uh, and, because of that, you you know, you had uh, in Iraq is where part of where Babylon was, you know, thousands of years ago. And Saddam Hussein was actually built like rebuilding the Babylonian Lion's Gate. Uh, he had in his palace, he had a painting of him with riding on chariots with Nebuchadnezzar, the famous Babylonian king. And so, you know, a lot of people think that that was actually, you know, a prophecy being fulfilled by making sure that, you know, the, that the U S army and, and its allies went into Iraq to make sure that God's word stayed true. You know, that, that, it, uh, that, that Babylon was never allowed to rise again. Now I don't want to get into the side subject of how come it mentions Babylon in revelation. Well, it's because it's not, it's talking about a metaphorical Babylon and not a literal one. Uh, you know, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Da-da. <laughs> Anyway, um, so yeah, I, I didn't walk away unscathed. Uh, I, I got out. Um, that's not a, a topic I can discuss, but I, I got out of the military. Uh, you know, honorable discharge, the, the whole shtick. Um, kind of, you know, my uniform to some degree looked like a, looked like a rainbow. It was pretty ridiculous. And, you know, I mean, I... I I had a complete lack of logic when I got out of there. I believed in Jesus Christ. And I got married to a woman that had three kids. I mean, and, and it's funny because I mean, before I went into the military, I knew very well that I never wanted to get married, that marriage was nonsense, that uh, it's okay if you're married. I'm, it's just my own opinion on it that I think it's nonsense. It's it. I mean, come on. Do you really need to do marriage, you know, to, to spend the rest of your life with somebody? Um, I knew I never wanted kids. And yet I took on both. 
you know, and I, and, and again, before going into the military, I was an atheist. Uh, and so I, I had an absolute, you know, total change, uh, that, you know, 180 in all of my desires occurred, uh, due to the military. And I, I think it's safe for me to say that it, that it's because of the military that, 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 that happened. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't, fortunately, I, I'm very thankful that I don't have anything like PTSD. Uh, but I think what has to happen is, and I don't, you know, I know the emailer mentioned, you know, what are your coping mechanisms? I think what had to happen was my coping mechanism was tricking my brain into believing ridiculous belief systems that told me what I was doing was okay. And that's not a sufficient coping mechanism. So I don't, I don't think, uh, I'll say this, uh, I, I don't think there is a coping mechanism. I think you can, you can certainly, you know, do therapy and whatever and, and get over traumas uh, or at least learn, learn how to uh, interact with your traumas. Uh, but I don't think there's any coping mechanism for what it what it takes for what it's like to take another human life. Um, I don't I don't think it's uh, I don't. I, you know, I worry. I worry about a, a lot of people um, in especially in the anarchist movements and the libertarian movements who are just so goddamn gun happy, you know, and they're, they 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 got to protect their Second Amendment and all this stuff. And, you know, I don't think any of them, I, I, or at least very few, have ever actually killed somebody. Because I think if you actually have some degree of a heart and you take another person's life, uh, I, I've seen plenty of people throw up after they do it the first time. Uh, I've seen people, I mean, it, you know, it messes with you. Because I, I, I think it's the most inhuman act that you can possibly do. It's just not something we're meant to do. So, I, you know, I worry when people are like, oh, yeah, no, anybody comes in my house, I'm going to take them out. It's like, come on, really? You can't think of anything else to do. You can't think of a way to, you know, why, why is the person even robbing you? Maybe they're hungry. Or maybe it's for some kind of fix. And doesn't that person need some kind of help? They don't need a gun to the head. I don't want anybody to go through the experience I went through by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but, you know, I, I like the Isaac Asimov quote that uh, violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. And I think that's really true. And I think when you realize just how horrible an act it is to kill another human being, I think you you get to the point that Isaac Asimov was talking about where you're like, yeah, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that's not how things have to get solved anymore. So no, no, there's no coping mechanism. There's there's only realization, uh, you know, of, of the of how precious life really is. I imagine I'll, I'll cut it off at the pass. Um I imagine a lot of people, someone's going to email me saying something along the lines of, uh, well, you hunt animals, don't you? Uh, completely different situation. Also, there are animals that I would not eat or kill. Uh, there, there's actually somewhat of a list of those. I can get into that at another point in time. Um, but I think there, there are, 
genuine logical justifications for the taking of the life of you know another creature for sustenance especially creatures that act purely on instinct and not on the ability to choose um but there is no doubt that when a human life ends that i in my opinion there's no doubt that the entire species and history is diminished and you know i mean the the fact that that well anyway that that's that i i hope that that kind of discusses it uh if if there are if anyone in my audience is is a veteran please you know feel free to email me or bit message me you know if you want to talk about uh your experience i think these things need to be brought to light um I have I have gotten emails recently of uh, from people saying, hey, I, I'm interested in my self-defense, but I don't like the idea of guns. I am so glad uh, that 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 maybe some of what I'm saying about the taking of another human life and my experience in the military or whatever uh, has affected people in a way to where they you know, they're they're choosing not to take a human life either. I mean, it's so final, you know, it's over. I mean, how anyone can think that somehow they know enough about a person's value, another person's value that they can take their lives is mind blowing to me. It wasn't always, but I learned that, you know, being in the army. Um, so, and I, I will discuss maybe, maybe next week I will discuss things that people can do, you know, non-lethal defense, non-lethal weaponry, whatever you want to call it, and, and I'll get into that. So I hope that that answers somewhat of the question, and, and maybe you found that interesting. I'll be back with more. Hey, look! Got an energy spike. Hold on! Bombing the Narn back to the Stone Age wasn't enough for you. Then we heard it. The sound of something terrible being born. This is madness. Station 3 to Commander Ivanova. Centauri have launched a full-scale assault. Time is coming on! It's our turn now! Two million tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. A world where empires rise and fall. Where dreams are born and die. Where war and hatred are challenged by love and faith. In the third age of mankind, an age plagued by an evil empire that seeks to destroy humanity. It is our last, best hope for peace, for victory, for freedom. It is Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is available for download on your favorite torrent site. See it now to experience the greatest show in television history. Babylon 5. Sovereign, go to this webpage and follow. What kind of webpage is this? Is that Natalia? I better go to the website of the week. It is time for website of the week, where I cover a website that I find useful, interesting, whatever. Just something maybe you should check out on the web. How about that? <laughs> and uh, this week, you know, we mentioned earlier, this is kind of ironic, we mentioned Slingshot which is the new app from the new Snapchat clone from Facebook. And I think there's an incredible irony in Facebook allowing for a private photo messaging app, which really they, they implemented that even of course, without the ability to delete quote unquote delete. Like, I mean, really, if you believe that those pictures are going to get deleted, um, I have a bridge to sell you. 
the, uh, the you know, uh, Instagram allowed for that with their direct messaging where you could send a picture. Of course, I guess the picture would be there forever. Right. And so that's supposed to be the advantage with, uh, with slingshot. So, but it's ironic because Facebook's policies on pictures themselves in their grander, uh, you know, operations and their grander, uh, uh, offerings like Facebook itself, facebook.com and Instagram, are very clear that, you know, you can't see, you can't show nipples, you can't show butt cracks, you can't show anything like that. And so it's so odd that they're creating apps that allow for people to do that. And it's almost like, it's almost an admission. It's like, yeah, look, we know that you show your nude body all the time or that you're, you know, sexting people and whichever, but look, just, just don't do it on Facebook. Let's just pretend that we're still in the 1950s. And frankly, even in the 1950s, I, I don't think the world was that way. I don't know that it ever was. Uh, it, someone tried, you know, a bunch of people tried to keep it that way, it seems, or pretend that it's that way, but it really just never has been. So what I want you to check out, the website of the week is shitthatgotmebanned.com. And it's a great site. It, it's a blog, and it's all pictures of it's all examples of pictures that people uploaded or things that people uploaded or posted to Facebook that got them banned from Facebook. And it's, it's amazing to to look at some of these things and really rather enraging uh, because some of it is just absolutely beautiful pictures of breastfeeding. Uh, That's fantastic. Some of it's very artistic shots um, of, of women, you know, and, and, and even of, of men. And, and it's ironic because the, the, the <laughs> like they're talking about one of the, uh, you know, they're, they're saying something to the effect that, that female nipples are unsafe to be seen. And then they, they post a picture from, uh, one of those grindhouse movies where the women have like guns for bras. And it's like, ah, oh, these look like unsafe nipples to me, but I guess you went ahead and show, let that stay up. Right. And so it's so odd. And then there's, you know, a nice uh, a picture of a child playing in a puddle and the child's, you know, only wearing rain boots. Uh, and it was posted by the child's mother. I mean, this isn't, you know, this isn't pornography by any stretch of the imagination, but that got them banned. Uh, then there's a shot of a few people sitting on the side of a pool and they're not wearing anything. All you can see is their backs, but you can see their butt crack. And yeah, that's got to go. We, we can't have that on uh you know, on, on Facebook for the world to see, it's just too dangerous. Uh, then there's another one where a mother is breastfeeding and she's her, her son is wearing a Spider-Man outfit and she's wearing, uh, the Spider-Man mask. And, you know, it's, it's saying, you know, yeah, I'm a cool mom and all this stuff, but nope, can't have that. No. (laughs) So it's just, it's mind blowing to, to see. Um, even there's like drawings where, you know, it's kind of the, I forget what they, what the exact word is for this, but it's sort of like the kind of the stick figures you would see on a restroom sign. And so it's the figures looking like that, but they actually have some degree of genitalia shown that got them banned. So it's not even if it's a real picture, if it's just a drawing, it gets you banned. And, you know, I gotta say, I mean, I've, I've had some degree of, of luck with this. Oh, there's even a picture of where two men are kissing that got banned. Oh, well, uh, (laughs) Uh, I, I've posted some pretty risque, you know, drawings. I never actually posted a real shot that that was risque and I got reported and I, you know, it said, it's like, would you like to take this down? And I said, no. 
and it moved on. So, I mean, obviously there's different degrees to which these things can get reported and taken down. Um, the Facebook uh, page for Free Talk Live has been reported multiple times, and you can actually lose access to your account for some odd 30, 40 days, and actually, or you know, even like three months. And the one for Free Talk Live, I remember, was reported because it was a woman in a like a gold bathing suit, and it looked like flesh, but it was it was a gold bathing suit. I mean, it's it's just it's preposterous. So you can get a good laugh and maybe a little angry by going to shitthatgotmebanned.com. Of course, the link is in the show notes. I'll be back with more. Hey, everybody! It's Stephanie. I am the sovereign tech producer. But did you know I am also a voiceover artist? Yes, it's true. I make audiobooks, commercials for your business. I narrate explainer videos. Pretty much any audio project that you can think of, I'm probably willing to work on it, or I have worked on it in the past. And if you want to hear some samples of my previous work, or you want to find out a little bit more about what I do, then I encourage you to check out my voiceover website, which is smvoice.info, smvoice.info. Now back to Sovereign Tech. Who knew you could ride a bike so well? I don't know if I can get us away from that helicopter. Don't you have a gun? Oh, there's never a need for lethal force. I'll handle this. How did you do that? We'll be fine. A quick hack solves everything. Hack, sack. Time for HackSec, where we talk about hackers and security and, you know, maybe the darker parts of the web. And uh, this week we've got something. This is a really exciting, I think. Uh, not not that I, I don't know how much use I'd, I'd make of this, but uh, I'm glad it's out there. And the story is coming from Wired. And it's a little bit of an older story, or it's, it's from April anyway. And it's Inside the Dark Market prototype a silk road the fbi can never seize oh yeah that's everything you can imagine <laughs> the silk road for all its clever uses of security protections like tor and bitcoin to protect the site's lucrative drug trade still offered its enemies a single point of failure when the fbi seized the server that hosted the market in october and arrested its alleged owner ross albrecht the billion dollar drug bazaar came crashing down in one group, uh, if one group of, of Bitcoin black market enthusiasts has their way, the next online free trade zone could be a much more elusive target. At a Toronto Bitcoin hackathon earlier this month, the group took, the, took home the $20,000 first prize with a proof of concept for a new online marketplace known as Dark Market a fully peer-to-peer -peer system with no central authority for the feds to attack. If dark, dark market's distributed architecture works, law enforcement would be forced to go after every contraband buyer and seller one by one, a notion that could signal a new round in the cat-and-mouse game of illicit online sales. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, said Amir Taki. I love that guy. <laughs> he's a wild one. He's, he's great. Uh, one of Dark Market's creators and founder of the anarchist group Unsystem. 
uh, in a short speech at the Toronto Bitcoin Expo unveiling the project. He compared dark markets improvements on the now defunct Silk Road to the advent of BitTorrent, a decentralized technology that revamped Napster's more vulnerable model of file sharing and flummoxed copyright enforcers. Like a hydra, those of us in the community that push for individual empowerment are in an arms race to equip the people with the tools needed for the next generation of digital black markets. Now, Amir Taki is also developer of Dark Wallet, which would explain where the name Dark Market comes from, right? Dark Market, Taki and its uh, other developers admit, is still just an experimental demonstration. They have yet to integrate anonymity protections like Tor into the software. Uh, Currently, every user's IP address is listed for every other user to see. And black market enthusiasts shouldn't expect dark market's creators to finish the open source project themselves anytime soon. Taki says he's focused on polishing his anonymous Bitcoin software project, Dark Wallet, which I just mentioned. And his co-creators, Damian Cotulio and William Swanson, say they're uh, tied up with their own Bitcoin startup known as Airbits. Uh, Airbits is actually a really interesting wallet Uh, and like business registry system. Uh, Anyway, this is just a simple prototype, but we wanted to show people that it's possible, Taki says, but this is going to happen. Uh, If not us, someone else will do it. Taki argues that Dark Market's code posted to GitHub already has all the basic ingredients that made Silk Road a giant underground success. The ability for buyers and sellers to communicate privately and make payments to each other. Pages where sellers can show their wares, a reputation system for sellers with ratings and reviews, and an escrow system that protects payments until goods are received by the buyer. And it's all totally decentralized, says Taki. Achieving those functions while also preventing scams and fraud is no simple task. Two of Dark Market's creators, Swanson and Cotulio, uh, Cotillo, maybe I'm saying it wrong, I'm sorry, gave Wired a demo of the software along with a step-by-step explanation of how a typical deal would go down. What they realized, what they revealed is a uh, Rube Goldberg machine of checks and balances designed to prevent users from cheating each other. Uh, without ever acquiring oversight from an administrator or other authority figure. Here's how it works. A user downloads the dark market software, which runs as a daemon in the background of the user's operating system, allowing them to connect to the dark market network through any browser. Uh, So this would essentially kind of work like Meowbit does for Windows, where Meowbit lets you, uh, you know, works in the background, but from Chrome or Firefox or whatever device you have, it lets you access those .bit domains, which is awesome. I love it when software works that way. Uh, the dark market daemon incorporates a library of commands for peer-to-peer networking known as 0MQ, which allows for the user's PC to become a node in a distributed network where every user can communicate directly with every other user. Any dark market user can become a seller on the market simply by editing an HTML file that dark market designates as his or her seller page, adding pictures and descriptions of items for sale just as he or she would on the Silk Road or eBay. Uh, for users with nothing to sell, the page remains blank. Buyers can browse the market by clicking on other users' dark market nodes or search for a seller's nickname to view their seller pages. At the moment, dark market displays only a bare IP address for every user, but the system's creators say it will eventually show a pseudonym for each one and will also allow product searches. When a user wants to buy something, he or she sends an order message 
uh, I'll take 10 of your finest MDMA doses <laughs> to the seller. If the seller agrees, the buyer and seller together choose what Dark Market calls an arbiter. Since the market doesn't have any central authority, the arbiter's job is to settle any disputes to serve as a tiebreaker in any stalemate that might arise if the deal goes sour. Both the buyer and seller can keep a list of approved arbiters, and one will be chosen at random from the overlapping names on their list. The arbiter is just another peer on the network, says Swanson. Just as anyone can buy, uh, can be a buyer or seller, anyone can be an arbiter. Once the buyer, seller, and arbiter for a transaction are chosen, Dark Market creates a new Bitcoin address that will serve as the escrow, holding the buyer's money until the transaction is complete. But this isn't any run-of-the-mill Bitcoin address. It combines the three users' public encryption keys uh, created based on a private encryption key generated when, inst when they installed Dark Market to offer what's known as multi-signature address or multi-sig. That's a, kind of a, a hot topic going around in the cryptocurrency space. That address is designed so that once the buyer's Bitcoins go into it, they can only be moved again if two out of the three parties agree agrees that and signs that transaction with the private key that controls their Bitcoins. So this is really, really secure. Um, let, let's, let's skip ahead a little bit. To create consistent identities and prevent untrustworthy users from impersonating uh, trusted ones, dark market nodes keep a list of all the public keys and nicknames of every user on the network. This ledger of names and keys is periodically put through a cryptographic function known as a hash and added to the Bitcoin blockchain by including it in a small transaction. That trick prevents anyone from altering the ledger to steal someone's identity. When a user searches for a nickname on Dark Market, the software looks at the blockchain to check the user's key against the ledger before displaying that user's seller page. Uh, so far, Taki has added Dark Market's identities to the Bitcoin blockchain manually, but he says he plans to automate the process. Uh, that really highlights, you know, so much that you can do with, I mean, this is kind of like almost a smart property to, to a digital degree, I guess, uh, with what you can do with blockchain technology and how that can actually be put into the present Bitcoin network. Uh, whether or not that's sufficient, that's a, that's a whole other story, but it can be done. If dark market improves and catches on among contraband traders, it's not exactly clear what legal risks Taki and his fellow quarters might be taking. Taki argues that he's merely distributing a program, not running a criminal conspiracy. I'm just a humble coder, he says. Code is a form of expression. You can't imprison someone for speaking an idea. Yeah, I, I hope that holds true. <laughs> uh, and if the creators of a fully peer-to-peer -peer black market were to be locked up, if all goes according to plan, their leaderless community would go about business as usual. Here's a video, and there, there's a video on there where you can check out how uh, how exactly dark market works. Now, this is really exciting. Now, I and here here's the thing: is that this is such a revolution in how business is done. Okay, how a market is run. I'd like to see this implemented all the way across the board, not just Silk Road, but have it be something that this is like how Amazon would run. This is how Tiger Direct would run. This is how, you know, Overstock.com would run. Um, I, I've always been impressed, like with, with the anonymity to some degree, of course, not the anonymity of the IP address, but uh, one could implement that on their own by running through Tor or I2P or something. Uh, I have always been impressed. I think it is a, is a Bitcoin store. The one that Roger Ver is actually behind and there they don't all they want is an address. They need no other information. And, you know, you just you got to buy with Bitcoin. And of course, it's easy enough, I think, to to anonymize an address with Bitcoin or at least it's possible. I guess I should say I don't know if I should really say it's easy enough. Um, but I love this. I think this is a tremendous business model. Uh, 
And, you know, who, who needs to know the names? You know, who, who, you don't really need to know the real names of even the people that run these businesses. And this is something that, that's so phenomenal that, yeah, you want that trust system, but it's Silk Road proved and uh, Dark Market can do the same thing. But Silk Road proved that you don't have to have like you don't really have to know the person for there to be trust within the system. The trust builds in through a reputation system, of course, but that can be done simply through, you know, through the recognition of, of keys of, of multisig, you know, all these different systems can allow for that trust. It is not required that. Well, I know Jeff Bezos and I trust Jeff Bezos. That's not necessary. You know, you can just trust the online identity to some degree. And if the system fails, I mean, you know, then you figure out how it fails and you fix it from there. I love it. I, I really do. And I think, you know, it's interesting. Oscar Wilde has a, has a saying, had a saying, he's obviously long dead, that give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth. And I think th- I think there's something really powerful in that, in the ability of anonymity. Now, in in future hack sex, I actually I want to talk about um, I want to talk about the idea of a really transparent society, and I want to really talk about it. I might even do a special about it. So, but for what we're talking about now, you know, the crypto anarchist aims, whatever that that people are looking towards, um, it's really anonymity is so powerful. It's not just powerful, you know, for the average encryption and, you know, making sure you can do things uh, with a degree of privacy, but it's powerful psychologically, I think. And, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of people would feel that it would actually be the opposite, that anonymity would 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 create a completely uh, untrustworthy situation. Dark Wallet is a case that proves that that's not true, but I think there's a broader subject there to to be discussed at some point. That anonymity is how the you know the truth comes out. In fact, what's what's that really you know the really popular app just came out for Android has been on iOS for a while. Uh, Secret. So many things are coming out on Secret that are absolutely true. Now there's a lot of bullshit too, of course, but a lot of a lot of predictions in the tech world are coming out from that. Anonymity is a really powerful thing, and I think every market should follow Dark Market's approach and allow for that. And I, I, it'd go far to eliminate a lot of shame, I think, in our society, and that's really important. I'll be back with more. Hey, everybody. I really appreciate all of you that listen to Sovereign Tech. I hope you have as much fun listening to the show as I do making it. And hey, if you have a good time listening or learn something from listening, you can donate to the show. Just look in the show notes at SovereignTech.com. There you'll see uh, addresses for Bitcoin, Blackcoin, Next, Litecoin, whole slew of ways to donate to the show. And believe me, I'm not going to complain if you only send two millibits or what equates to $2, unlike some people. But, you know, also you can donate via PayPal using the affiliate links on the left-hand side of SovereignTech.com. And, oh, yes, please feel free to use those affiliate links. You can also help the show by circling me on Google+, following me on Twitter, or following Sovereign Tech on SoundCloud. Anything you can do to help, believe me, it helps. So I love all of you, and thank you so much for listening. Now let's get back to more Sovereign Tech. Well, looks like we made it out of the country. Good driving. Let's find some place to relax. Somewhere with a nice big bed, I think. Let me pull up an app. Sounds good to me. 
Software of the Week. It is time for Software of the Week, uh, where we touch on software that, you know, really great software. Sometimes it's really terrible software. Sometimes it's something useful. I suppose Dark, uh, dark Market is could have been software of the week but i thought that really deserved a, a lot of discussion and explanation because it's it's just it's so incredible uh that that kind of ability and and really the a lot of the ramifications there's really large ramifications for that especially the fact that you know businesses could become almost you know impenetrable the only thing that could ruin them would be reputation wouldn't that be great and in fact the businesses could keep going and it didn't require the force of the gun for them to keep going. It didn't require government. It just required, you know, people, uh, you know, a trustless system that that was based upon a degree of reputation, which, you know, maybe some could argue that that's trust. But anyway, I want to get into talking about <laughs> talking about trust. I want to talk about this is something I talked about last week. This is a piece of software, but I really want to make the case for people to use this. I am so excited about this technology. Uh, about this software and it's RetroShare. I mentioned it last week. I really want listeners to get on board with this. Now at SovereignTech.com in the show notes, look in the show notes, my certificate, okay, which is kind of my key, my public, my public key is, is there for RetroShare and you can add me on RetroShare. Now what is RetroShare? RetroShare is, it's really an entire software platform that allows for, it used what's it used what's called uh, friend to friend, okay, technology. And friend to friend is different from peer to peer. In that peer to peer, you can kind of connect to anybody, okay. But friend to friend, you have to you have to share each other's certificates. You have to share each other's keys to be able to interact with each other through this. You know, in many ways, it's an alternative internet, and it's it's very secure. It's using PGP. Uh, I mean, that's that's about the best encryption we've got on the planet right now. And I love it. It's open source. It's cross-platform. Works for just about everything. You're not going to get it on Android or iOS, unfortunately, as much as I would love for that. It's not something that runs in a browser. It's its own software. But if you have, you know, OS X, if you have Windows, if you have a Linux machine or BSD, whatever, you can get RetroShare working on there, and it is solid. Uh, when you start it up, you know, you got to have a really great... Uh, password, okay, set up to make your your key, and you'll have to you know move your mouse to to really randomize the uh, you know the private key and everything. And it's great. Uh, it's it's totally serverless, just like MadeSafe is going to be. There's no server. This is, in fact, until MadeSafe comes out, this is about the best software I think one can use. Uh, and you know, so because it's it's totally decentralized. We keep talking about how we want to decentralize everything. Here's a great start, and it's been around for a few years, and they've really, really brought on a lot of polish, and it it's still actively developed. This isn't something that's been pushed uh, off to the wayside. So it allows for, I mean, you can send large files, download, upload, uh, you know, messaging. You can create forums. It has channels. You can even do VoIP. You can do voice over IP on it. Uh, in fact, down the line, from what I understand, they can even even implement video, uh, you know, conferencing. And so this could replace Skype. Why not? <laughs> so, you know, as instant messaging, um, again, it, you know, uses GPG for, you know, for its authentication. Uh, I mean, it's got it all. Okay, <laughs> it, it really does. It allows for plugins, so you can put in a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, as it uses Qt, same stuff that a lot of the encryption software we use today uh, is being built upon. 
Uh, it's really slick. And in fact, it can even be, it can be a literal dark net. Uh, if you eliminate, if you can turn and you have the ability to control these things, if you turn off the distributed hash uh, table, you can actually, it can work as a dark net. So, you know, you wouldn't even need to be connected to the internet for it to work. You could be on your own little private network, uh, which is really cool. So it's a pretty versatile piece of software as well. Uh, I, yeah, I just I, I think you can't beat it. I don't think there's a better piece of software out there. And in fact, honestly, I've been saying for a while, you know, there's got to be something better than email, right? We got to get better than email. I think RetroShare to, to a very real degree is that better thing. I mean, it's almost other than maybe a keylogger, it's impossible to or it's not. I shouldn't say impossible. At present, it is incredibly difficult to break the encryption of RetroShare. This is top notch top-notch software that I, I really would love to get everybody involved on. I'll make, you know, if enough people start, you know, I build a, a big enough friend network on there, we'll start building groups. We'll have a sovereign tech group, uh, you know, y- you name it. In fact, you know what? This is really cool. A listener of the show made a sovereign tech group on liberty.me. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Uh, that's, that's so cool. So you can check that out too, but we could do this all. We could do the whole thing. You could even get access to the show. I could just put the whole show library in RetroShare and you could download the episodes and listen to them, you know, willy nilly. I think that'd be awesome. Hell, then I wouldn't even have to have a SoundCloud page. (laughs) So please do check out RetroShare. The link is in the show notes. It's retroshare.sourceforge.net. Okay. Totally open source. This is one of the best pieces of software out there. Hands down. Go for it. I'll be back with more. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. Oh, Oh, Natalia. Oh, Oh, it feels so good. I'm so close. I know what you need. The Climax. It is time for the Climax. And oh, yes. Um, this week's climax is actually going to kind of be tied in with the listener email. Uh, and just because it's a topic I want to talk about and it's fitting, uh, considering what was just released, um, this week, which was the episode three of Star Trek continues. Uh, it was, um, fairest of them all. I think it was called fantastic it took place right after it shows the events of literally what happens right after the the events of the very popular original series star trek episode mirror mirror where they end up in an alternative universe where there's a terran empire and not a united federation of planets and everything's very cutthroat and etc uh it was really it, it was and the episode i'll just say right out the gate was amazing uh it was great the acting was phenomenal of course the the production value was fantastic so uh i wanted i'll, I'll read some of this uh this listener email here 
Um, I was wondering if you could touch on the following issue in your next episode of Sovereign Tech. A lot of people complain about sequels with video games and movies. However, uh, I have not. I don't even mind remix such as Resident Evil 1 on the GameCube. What I do mind, and by the way, that that <laughs> that remake or remix of Resident Evil 1 on GameCube was freaking amazing. Uh, what I do mind, and I find it to be disappointing, are the revamping of video games and movies. What I mean is, take for instance the new Star Trek series. They completely took almost 50 years of Star Trek history and retold it from the beginning which made me dislike the two new movies. J.J. Abrams must think mighty high of himself to hit the delete button on Gene Roddenberry's work. I find they're doing this in video games, for example, the revamped Thief. If you remember, Thief was a computer game that was very original, a lot of fun, and a game with great acting and an interesting story. With the new release, they scrapped all the old story and started over. Konami recently did this to Castlevania with Lords of Shadow. I am curious to hear your thoughts on this issue because I find that it takes a lo- it takes long-running stories and turns them on their head. What is next, Metal Gear or Metroid? And uh, really appreciate the email. And uh, boy, man, you really got your video game history. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. I know what you mean. Um, and yeah, I share your concern. Uh, I don't mind when things get kind of updated when they come out with HD versions of games or even when... You know, like I and maybe I'm sort of a rarity with this, like with Star Wars, when George Lucas, you know, adds scenes and he does special editions and then he does Blu-ray special editions where he makes Darth Vader say no, you know, and all that stuff. I really don't mind it. Uh, by and large, it's it's especially when it's the original creators, it's the creator's vision of how they wanted it to look. I, I think that's fine. Or when they do director's cuts, all this kind of stuff, I think is really, really cool. But the complete revamping. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm really with you. It it annoys the hell out of me. Uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know really what brings it on. You know, I think the most popular case would have to be Thief was a great example. And boy, the new Thief game was terrible, wasn't it? Um, but I think probably the most popular example would be Tomb Raider. And this is one that actually I, I, I'm kind of annoyed by. All right. The new Tomb Raider game is great. And it's kind of a prequel story, but they're really, they are rewriting the entire history. And I'm sure uh, two years down the line, or however many years it takes for the the game franchise to get to that point, they are going to completely remake the original Tomb Raider game. There's nothing wrong with the original Tomb Raider game. Yeah, fine, it's pixelated and, you know, it's polygony and all that stuff. Uh, But so what? You know, great game's a great game. And, uh, yeah, and, and J.J. Abrams, you know, I, I, by and large, enjoyed the, the new Star Trek movies, but it's, it's fascinating because someone, you know, like the Star Trek Continues team, they just jump on, you know, they just jump right on and say, okay, yeah, we've got new actors, you know, we, we can't get William Shatner in the gold uniform anymore, of course, but we're just going to pick up and you know treat this rich history and incorporate as much of this rich history as we can and and do it just like it was done in the 60s more or less and uh and it's amazing how popular that is you know and how nobody has a problem especially with star trek continues it's the perfect example because if you just do things the way they were done they were always done people you know they they don't mind that it's not the same actors and they and and really, like I say, I've said this many times about Star Trek Continues because I've reviewed every episode so far. Of course, there's only three of them, but I totally forget that I'm not watching original Star Trek. 
it's that good. It's that well produced. But then when I watch the new J.J. Abrams movies, it's like, well, what the hell? You know, <laughs> it's just I mean, it's good, but it's. Yeah, they, they dumped 50 years of history. Now, J.J. Abrams was pretty smart. I think he realized how much of a problem this was. He was pretty intelligent to put in, you know, Leonard Nimoy and at least attach this alternative universe to the prime Star Trek universe, but it's really not the same. And there's really no good reason to not do a Star Trek 11 with Captain Picard, or even the original plans was to, uh, you know, Scott, Scott Bakula's talked about this at conventions where he said, you know, they were told the entire cast of the show enterprise was told that they were the next big franchise and that they were, you know, they were the next big thing. They were supposed to have all the movies. Like there was going to be a movie about the earth Romulan war and all that stuff got tanked. And I guess they just, they Hollywood and the video game industry just think ridiculously at that. They think that revamping it, you know, and redoing it, retelling the story tricks everybody into thinking, yeah, look, okay, we know it kind of sucked back then, but now it's all good. When, you know, frankly, if you thought it sucked, be whatever this thing happens to be, you know, be it a thief or whatever, or if you can't appreciate something having a classic look or it coming from the time that it was made, then get out of here. It's not meant for you anyway, if you can't appreciate it as is. What are you even bothering for? especially with the Star Trek thing. It's like, oh yeah, Star Trek's cool now. Yeah, well, you know what? Your your two movies, okay, they were enjoyable, but as far as compared to every other hour of Star Trek out there, they suck ass. I mean, they're bad. They don't have any morals, you know, which was, that's the beauty of Star Trek was always kind of the moral story. There's no morals there. It's just some kind of trick to to show off, you know, Google and Apple's dream of a, of a future, what what their little bridge would look like. It's nonsense. And believe me, I read I read the origin story for the new con, and it was found wanting. There is no good explanation. J.J. Abrams, along with half the crew in Hollywood, like the revamped Battlestar Galactica, oh man, don't even get me started, like Ron Moore and J.J. Abrams, they all have the same problem. They, they write by the seat of their pants. They have no vision. They have no vision at all. They just make shit up as they go along. It's ridiculous. Uh, so, so yeah, you know, I, I, I really hear you. Now with the Tomb Raider, I wanted to get into that with Tomb Raider. It's like, yeah, we wanted to make it more realistic. We realized it was offensive that that Lara Croft is walking around with, you know, whatever size waist and she has like, you know, 38 triple F's for tits. And yeah, I I get it. Okay, I, I, I can understand. I mean, I commonly call myself a feminist. Believe me, I get it. Okay, but. The fact it's almost like the fact that, well, you see, now we, we made her a little more realistic. Now she has a 36 C bus size. Uh, come on. <laughs> like, why is that a selling point? I, I really I, I don't get it, you know, and, and in fact, actually, a, a lot of I've, I've talked to, to many female nerds, video game players, whatever in the past, and they saw Laura Croft, they didn't care about the physicality. They just cared about the fact that, holy shit, finally, it was a woman leading a video game. And they were so excited about that. And then it just it seems like it seems like a gimmick. It really does. To decrease the bus size of Laura Croft, it just feels like an absolute gimmick. I get it, but I, th- I think it's nonsense. And 
it's because you know there was just there was poor sales of Lara Croft games so they say well let's let's reboot it and then everybody will think this is great and then the media doesn't help at all because they just get right on board with it and they say oh yeah oh this is amazing yeah they finally got it right Tomb Raider's back blah 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 you know bullshit Tomb Raider anniversary was awesome Underworld was freaking awesome you know I mean they're they're just they're fantastic games and yeah like what are they ever going to remake Metroid no, let it ride. In fact, they they kind of Nintendo kind of did that, and a lot of people complained with other M. They they sort of redid the they kind of refashioned Samus Aran as not as being kind of the tough woman that she was. So you know, they just won't leave it alone. They won't leave it alone. And Star Wars is really doing this, though I can kind of understand it. But, uh, you know, I, what I really think a lot of it comes down to is, is just is just raw laziness. And the comic book uh, industry is doing this, too, where they're rewriting, uh, you know, like the new 52 DC, the entire. You know, I mean, talk about 50 years, 70 years of comic book history just gone down the tubes just like that. And it comes down to laziness to where the creators, the artists, whoever's involved with any of these projects, be it comic books, video games, movies, TV shows, you name it. They just, they refuse, they don't want to take the time to really understand the medium and the universe that they're writing in. And that's, and it's, it's just, that's it. It's lazy and it's disrespect to the medium. And I, I, I think it's crap. I mean, and it's not like, you know, and, and I don't know what Hollywood's thinking. They're like, well, you can't find anybody that, under, that understands this stuff. Are you kidding? My brain is, I am a walking Star Trek encyclopedia. If you want to make sure that continuity never gets fucked with, please give me a call, 603-852-8708, or it was Star Wars. I'm a, I'm a walking science fiction encyclopedia. I have so much useless knowledge in my head, it hurts. I mean, people can keep track of this stuff. They just don't care. It's all about that freaking, you know, there's no respect for the art form. And this isn't a new problem. Sadly, this has been a problem that's been around for a while. Um, In fact, uh, Straczynski, J. Michael Straczynski, the, the god that created Babylon 5, years ago, over a decade ago, he got hired to do a remake of Forbidden Planet. Now, for those that haven't seen Forbidden Planet, this is the penultimate science fiction movie. In fact, most science fiction, Star Trek and Star Wars included, uh, heavily copy things from Forbidden Planet. It is awesome. It is it's it's the original as far as any star as far as any science fiction story goes. So much is taken from it. And even it is based off of The Tempest by William Shakespeare, but that's another story. Um it's like, why do a remake? There's so many great stories to tell. Unfortunately, it seems like Straczynski got his way and he was able to, because there's a species, the Krell, and you're trying to figure out how they died. And there's a really transhumanist message in it too, uh, because they uploaded their brains into a machine and oh shit, what happened? Uh, You know, that's a tremendous story to tell. Why waste the money on a fucking remake? Let's just go back and you know, and get into that and, and into those stories. There's so many stories to tell. So yeah, I, I hear you. And, and it's all nonsense and it's a disrespect for the medium. And then, yeah, okay. It's all a money-making scheme, but then that cheapens everything when you realize that it's all just for the money. It's not for the passion of the art. Art is greater than money. That's why art, that's why crazy pieces of artwork sells for 10 million a pop, you know, some, some canvas will sell for that amount of money. It, it does. It goes beyond money. 
Yeah, I, I feel your frustration. I, I really do, emailer. Thank you so much for, for writing about that. But if you want to see some really respectful revamping, or not revamping, just some really respectful remixing and, and continuing, go check out Star Trek Continues Episode 3. Uh, it, it's it's fantastic. It's on YouTube and Vimeo. And enjoy the sexy Mirror Mirror universe once more. Anyway... Get ready for next week's episode. You're going to love it. I'll be all over the place. DC and Porkfest. Harpe Lucem. I'll see you on the other side. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com. And connect with us there. Find links from today's show. And catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love, and love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the Evolution. Evolution.